Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast. Private credit continues to support economic growth. It's a vital source of finance for businesses. We remain optimistic about the prospect of this asset class despite the uncertain economic outlook. In this podcast, we are here to talk about why this is and what is triggering the emergence of specific investment opportunities and some of the challenges faced by the private credit managers across the globe. The Alternative Credit Council, in partnership with Allen and Overy, has launched the Financing the Economy 2020 report, an in-depth study into how COVID-19 has shaped the current state of the market and outlook to 2021. I'm Kamar Jaffer, counsel in Alan and Ovary's Middle East Funds and Asset Management team, and I'm delighted to be joined by our resident private credit experts, Yiri Kroll, Deputy CEO of the Alternative Credit Council, and my colleague at Alan and Ovary, Todd Koretsky, partner in the Leverage Finance and Backing Practice in New York. Welcome, Yiri and Todd. Happy to be here. Hi there, Kamar. First question to you both. What role can private credit play in rebuilding the economy in a post-pandemic world? I think the role is pretty unique. We already have a solid track record post the GFC where as the banks have retreated due to a number of reasons, both commercial and regulatory, private credit had stepped in and provided important backing for the long recovery that we experienced from 2009-10 onwards. And I think this time around, the features of private credit, such as the ability to deploy capital and speed and size, as well as to do that flexibly, coupled with the fact that now it's a much bigger pool of capital, means that we are going to be providing that anti-cyclical support for the real economy. Yeah, Todd here, I agree with that. I also would flag that as the private credit segment has grown larger and become increasingly sophisticated and moved up market into the larger cap transactions. We're also seeing a flow of talent. So bankers from the most prestigious franchises in the syndicated lending and leverage finance market have now begun to be hired and to join private credit businesses, whether the independent firms or affiliates of private equity shops. And I think that also has facilitated a continued uh, virtuous cycle of additional capital, additional talent, and additional transactions and larger and more complex deals being done in the private credit space. And I think that in and of itself has been a propulsive factor for direct lending. Uh, Yuri, given the transition that Todd has mentioned across private credit, how has the perception of private credit evolved over the course of the last six years since the publication has been in circulation? I think the headline would read from niche to mainstream. Prior credit started as a masterclass or a space within the credit complex that was defined by a relatively small box. You're somewhere between marketplace lenders and those kind of companies that, that cannot reach either bank finance or public markets. I think that's transformed completely. Not only did the definition of mid-market balloon to mean something which is slightly different than it was before, but large cap companies have now accessed uh, the bilateral market in scale and they're flocking to the private credit providers for the very reasons I highlighted before. Things are just simpler. They tend to be more bespoke and they tend to be quicker. So if you need capital 
relatively quickly. Private credit providers are there to help you, even if you've got other venues of finance available to you. So, so that's on the borrower side. I think on the investor side, you've got something similar. You, you now have the second or third generation of large institutional investors piling in. And what we see is that beyond the par lending complex, we see a number of satellite strategies coming online and the more sophisticated investors are seeking further diversification in, in the uh, different areas of private credit, like real estate lending, asset-backed lending, trade finance, and so forth. So overall, maturity, growth, diversification, those would be the words I'd describe the asset class. And uh, what key regulatory changes and developments, uh, Yuri, are being put in place to boost the flow of finance to businesses and to support the economic recovery? And what further would you like to see in this regard? In the regulatory space, we have something which is quite uneven. So the U.S. is very well developed with very few barriers to non-bank lending, especially for sophisticated investors uh, using private markets, private funds. Whereas in Europe, the the situation is extremely fragmented still, even though we've seen a number of jurisdictions really move to support direct lenders and to provide the ability for non-bank finance to, to grow within their jurisdiction. The problem is whenever you start to do something that's cross-border, so you know if you want to use a fund from Luxembourg to lend into France, that may imply a whole host of regulatory issues. So we're trying to move to resolve problems for cross-border activity and the current discussion on the European Long-Term Investment Fund that we had initiated as part of the Capital Markets Union project looks very promising in that fund vehicle could be reformed in a manner that would allow for that cross-border origination to take place without national rules hampering that, as well as provide a much more attractive opportunity from the perspective of also accessing the retail or let's say semi-professional market. So in Europe, a lot more to be done than, than elsewhere around the world. But there are some things that could happen in the US as well, especially in relation to the business development companies where we've seen continuous modernization of that space. And there are still a number of things that could be improved. For example, by broadening the access to wider indices by BDCs that could sort of uh, allow for much more meaningful flow of capital in that space. And that's something that we're currently working on as well. Okay. Todd, looking at the deals and just trying to sort of look at it from a different perspective, how is COVID-19 affecting due diligence, pricing and documentation? And there has been a concern about the growth of Covenant Lights alongside a trend towards more borrower-friendly documentation. How are you seeing this play out in practice? Sure, good question. I would say private credit funds, because of the nature of their buy and hold investments, right? They're not syndicating out to a market, they're not intermediaries, but rather they're holding loans for returns, have always been very focused on credit quality and due diligence. Not to say that the investment banks aren't, but it just takes on a different nature when the primary principal investor will retain the paper. And so I'd say with the rise of volatility in the public and syndicated markets and the ability of the private lenders to step in and provide much needed liquidity to what are generally privately held businesses, there is definitely a heightened focus on evaluating legal and commercial risks, credit quality, and generally the health and wellness of these businesses in this 
pandemic context because you know everything that's being done now is of course in the shadow of COVID-19. And so I'd say the private lenders are in particular very focused on ensuring quality control in their investments and their portfolios. In terms of pricing, as one would expect, it's increased a bit throughout 2020, right? Simply as a reflection of the demand for capital across industries, particularly those squeezed by the pandemic. And then in terms of documentation, we initially in early or spring, I guess, to summer of 2020, we're seeing a bit of tightening across the market. Everyone was trying to be a bit more careful and conservative. But I'd say toward the back end of 2020, particularly as the equity markets have continued to rally and there's vaccines have been introduced, there's optimism pervading the market in terms of what's in store next year. Frankly, documentation in terms and negotiated EBITDA backs, covenants, et cetera, have once again, shifted to the borrower favorable posture. So yes, we've seen bespoke changes to EBITDA for COVID effects. We've seen certain liquidity covenants being introduced, but I'd say by and large, there continues to be so much competition for capital that capital providers like direct lenders are under pressure to offer favorable dealing terms to sponsors their portfolio companies. Covenant Light, as you mentioned, which has been a predominant feature in the leveraged lending syndicated market for a number of years, indeed is increasing in its prevalence in the private credit market, although I would say still is very much still in the minority of deals and only and, and there are many funds that simply will not entertain Covenant Light transactions. So yet to be seen what unfolds next year with respect to that term, but I suspect with the ongoing competition between the syndicated market and the private market, we will see pressure on private credit funds to allow for looser covenants and covenant light structures. And Yuri, what we saw in mid-2020 was a strong bounce back in the fundraising. What is your outlook for fundraising looking forward? It looks pretty strong from what the managers tell us from our conversations with investors. If you looked at the numbers for 2020, I mean, you would see a significant drop in the amount of assets raised, but not a catastrophic drop. And given that we had effectively a lull for about a quarter in the year, if, if you take that quarter out, you would see that fundraising continues apace post-summer. So the investors are back. Everybody's learning how to raise assets in a virtual environment. And I think it's moved from simply allocating to existing managers and relationships and helping those allocations to to also allocating to new managers post, let's say, virtual due diligence exercise. So the investors are, are evolving. They are becoming more flexible as a result of COVID. Many are stepping outside of their comfort zone, especially if they want to capture some of the opportunities that are emerging from the disruptions we've experienced. And Generally, the macro environment is such that there is very little to be gained from investing in sort of public fixed income security. So as an anecdote, we had an investor at our forum talk about how they brought down their public debt market exposure from 23% of their portfolio to zero. And with an outlook of replacing it with the various forms of private debt investment. So I think coupled with the continued structural impairment of the banking industry, there's likely to be opportunity for growth, both on the sort of the origination side, but also on the investor side due to 
variety of, of these macroeconomic factors. And like the, as far as we can see into the future, interest rates are likely to stay extremely low, if not at zero for a very long time. That's an interesting story about the investors shifting their attention from public equities fixed income towards private credits. Todd, what are the investment strategies that you see are attractive to institutional investors and why? Well, in my experience, investors are drawn toward quality. So when you've got private credit funds that have a brand, have experience, and are hiring talented individuals to execute their strategies, then success begets success. And so we're seeing sort of the separation of the wheat from the chaff. And the most successful firms, whether they be independents, BDCs, private equity affiliates, or even lately um, private debt businesses within investment banks or asset management arms of investment banks. I don't mean to be flip here, but the best strategy is success. I mean, and I think that discipline around credit quality, quality control, documentation, um, ensuring you're, you know, have the best advice from counsel and deploying capital in intelligent and discriminating ways, I think is the recipe for success. I mean, there will always be industry or sector expertise. There will be funds that focus on particular parts of the economy or certain geographical markets. But I just think fundamentally what's imperative here is prudent and thoughtful deployment of capital. And we have seen certain firms do quite well through 2020 in the face of such volatility and uncertainty out there in, in the economy and in the market, what we have really seen is those firms that are disciplined, stay the course, prudent, and also a bit opportunistic, I think, have been successful. So that, to me, ending 2020, heading into 2021, I think we'll continue to see the leadership in the industry become more apparent as the household names become more frequently utilized and discussed. Now, there are new entrants entering to, into the market, and I, I think there's an opportunity for them to do well by making a name for themselves through you know, innovation, whether it be more efficient execution using technology or simply old school credit, you know, credit analysis. But one way or another, I, I think quality will continue to attract investors, as has always been the case. If I may add to that, I think the discussion oftentimes before the, the COVID crisis, what was around, well, you know, how will private credit weather the next cyclical downturn? And, and sometimes the narrative was led in a way that, that made you think that, you know, it's going to be either, either pass or fail for the entire asset class. And I think what Todd's pointing to is, is, is the fact that we have expected and, and we've experienced differentiation not across these asset classes in particular but but across the managers so we saw dispersion of performance uh, right from the beginning depending on the, the types of approaches that uh, that you'd have so so you know some people were more exposed to some of the cyclical sectors than, than others some people had more leverage and different kinds of leverage that has created potential problems for them so i think you see some definite differentiation there in performance that's likely to lead to, to sort of further growth for some, potentially not uh, as much growth for, for others. But but overall, it's not like there has been some sort of a universal impairment as, as again, some narratives prior to the crisis that maintain. The regulatory community sometimes, you know, put private credit next to the uh, subprime credit. And if you read some of the financial stability reports published by 
some of the central banks, this is exactly how they were positioning it, right? That ultimately this is potentially a sort of a high risk, you know, unsustainable form of, you know, investing and providing finance. I think that's just proven to be totally wrong. And and what we saw was, was a strong performance by and large, but differentiated performance where there are definitely some weaknesses, but not structural weaknesses there due to the choices of the managers. The other comment I think that comes up is that there's a lot of dry powder, especially in the US. There have been questions about deployment capabilities, deal flow and origination pipeline. Todd, what are you seeing in this regard? There is a huge amount of dry powder. I think that's it's an accurate observation. And one consequence of that is bigger deals. When funds are raising double-digit billion amounts of, of dollars, then with limited investment horizons, then you know it follows that they will need to write bigger checks to deploy that capital and generate returns. So that's true on an individual fund basis where you have these jumbo funds having been raised, but also across the market when there's simply so much capital flowing across the, the various private credit platforms. We are seeing sponsors and their portfolio companies look to private credit for debt solutions that historically would invariably have gone to the syndicated market. And so we're talking about billion dollar loans up or simply a higher volume of triple digit $100 million loans. And those are much easier to put together now in the private market than they ever were before. And I do think this is in large part simply a result of there being so much capital and dry powder in the private space that it needs to be put to work. That's working to the advantage of the sponsors who would, in any particular situation or during any period of volatility, would shy away from the syndicated market and instead look for a privately negotiated and executed solution. So that's the most pronounced consequence of the unprecedented amount of dry powder that I've seen. It needs to be put to work. And it will be put to work in larger and more uh, frequent chunks of loan size. And looking out into the future for private credit, can you both share your thoughts on some of the bigger issues that will affect managers beyond 2021? A yearie, maybe? I think ESG is really up there as something that managers will have to pay much more attention to going forward, not just from the perspective of the investors becoming more demanding, and discerning, but also from the point of view of regulatory intervention. We saw Europe uh, finalize a number of pieces of uh, regulations that affect both issuers as well as asset managers when it comes to really assessing the types of investments that, that you have, integrating ESG into your risk management process, and then crucially also disclosing a lot of information to an, an investors. And that's just the beginning. The second wave is coming and private markets are very much part of that second wave. With the change in administration in the United States, we will have the White House and the agencies very much focused on ESG issues. Unlike the previous administration, you know, this is very much part of the uh, program that you want to as a minimum, start with climate change and environmental issues, but most likely move on and also tackle some of the S and G related issues across the investment space. And so that revolution is now coming to the US from a regulatory perspective, not just from an investor preference perspective. And what it means for managers 
I think is potential complications because it's very likely that the European and the US regimes are not going to mesh particularly well. So we're focusing on is really trying to make sure that both regimes remain relatively open and can, even if they are different, still remain consistent that you can provide disclosures that don't violate the rules in one jurisdiction or another and so forth. So something that we should definitely pay attention to both industry bodies like the ACC are going to be doing more work on this, providing guidance, providing technical support, but we're going to see further regulatory involvement by governments, which could complicate things from a sort of a cross-border or a global perspective. Picking up on that last bit about cross-border and global, my view is that as an internal or strategic matter, the private credit firms will need to expand their capabilities to ensure that they can service the needs of their of their borrowers and their portfolio. I think as as deals get larger, as I mentioned before, and I, I do foresee there being an increase in cross-border activity in the private credit space. To date, that's been largely dominated by the investment banks and the syndicated market. But I can very much expect the larger private credit firms that already have outposts in multiple geographies to start to mesh those businesses and offer cross-border solutions for global businesses. I think in doing so, they will need to bulk up their personnel, their expertise. They'll need to add capabilities, I think, around you know ancillary products that they may want to offer to their businesses, whether it be hedging or swaps or cash management. I mean, I'm not suggesting that private credit firms will ever become banks or investment banks, but in terms of having downside restructuring capabilities and other capacities that will be required in order to provide this increasingly complex and mature solution, I can see the private credit firms evolving from these essentially lending boutiques into something more akin to uh, multifaceted firms. And I think that's an exciting development as the private credit space and those businesses uh, continue to mature. Thank you, uh, Yuri and Todd, for sharing your your insights and perspectives on this on the private credit markets. I think for me, the three key takeaways from our discussion was that private credit is no longer niche; it's it's maturing and continuing to do so. In terms of growth, there are larger funds, larger deals, and lots of opportunities across different parts of the the capital structures and the types of investment strategies. And we're seeing a lot more increasingly complex solutions having to be developed by market players to provide the liquidity required. So thank you very much for participating and thank you for listening and stay safe. Thank you. Take care.